What's up, guys? It's Felix here of Uva Radio. I have another interview for you guys today. I'm joined here by Nana Trump of Yugoslav Studies. How are you doing today? Very good, thank you. Very good, very good. And um, we're here today to talk about Yugoslavia, which is a very, very complex issue. And I did two modules last year on it, uh, both with Nana, and they're very enjoyable. But I wanted to talk to you today to kind of shed some light on what's going on there, because I think it's really the most complicated region in the whole world, and the Yugoslav Wars are probably the most complicated conflict of the 20th century. Um, and right now there's some interesting stuff going on with Karasic, isn't there? Uh, yes. Uh, on 20 March 2019, the International Tribunal for Former Yugoslavia uh, finalized his case and in the appeal judgment, the leader of Bosnian Serbs in Bosnia, Radovan Karadzic, was um, convicted uh, and put in prison for life. And he was one of the Serbian generals no, who committed? He was, no, he was political leader. He was political leader. Yeah, he yeah. was president of uh, this quasi-state within Bosnia called Republika Srpska. Republika Srpska, yeah, mm-hmm. okay, yeah. Um, and do you agree with that verdict? Do you think that he should have been put away for life? Well, I, I you know, I, for, for some of you um, who do not have too much legal experience, and unfortunately I do have because I, I worked at this institution, uh, Yugoslav Tribunal, for almost 13 years, uh, is that verdicts uh, by itself are less important for me than the text of the judgment. And text of the judgments, the uh, text of the judgment is very long, verdict is very short. And what you see in a verdict is just a punishment so life sentence in prison for a political leader who was at this position three and a half years of the war is, I think, uh, well, something that at least victims expected. Uh, but if you read into, so according to verdict, there is some sort of justice achieved. Mm. Uh, but if you uh, read the judgment, then there are bigger question marks about uh, his role in in the war, and he was um, so he was a political leader in Bosnia, um, and which years in which did he commit his crimes? Um, was it the real heat of the war in ninety ninety two and ninety three? Uh, you know, uh, once an armed conflict starts in a country, then you uh, can very easily see what sort of conflict it is and then you you count the victims so there are many dead bodies destructed towns villages expelled the population and all these things that i'm now mentioning are actually qualified as a crimes uh according to international humanitarian law or a geneva convention or a genocide convention but actually uh in in his case, in a case of politician like Radovan Karadzic, you know, he was hardly ever um, present when actual crimes were happening. So it, for, for you and your audience to understand what is so specific of having a political leader being tried at an international criminal mm. court is that as in every criminal court in national jurisdiction, the Prosecution needs to prove actus reus, the criminal acts that happened on the ground. So 
and mens rea, criminal intent. Mm -hmm. So for actus reus, for all these criminal charges uh, uh, of death, uh, people, phantom destructions, you know, you can uh, follow them after the outbreak of the war. But for mens rea, criminal intent, you actually have to go way before the conflict yeah, starts. Yeah, it's much more difficult to prove. And then you go, yeah. but it has to be proved because if you prove just actus reus that there were 8,000 plus dead bodies mm. after the massacre in Srebrenica, you still do not know who is responsible for it. The guy actually who used the gun and executed 10 of them uh, or there... And, and what is mens rea, what is criminal intent on, on, on a soldier who, who was ordered to do killing, and what is the criminal intent of someone like Radovan Karadzic. So in short, to prove criminal responsibility for a politician, in this case Karadzic, it was uh, important to prove both and criminal acts that happened, and which with which he was charged in the indictment, but also to go to his first days of becoming politician sometime in 1990 and following his contemporaneous words, connect them with mm. eventual deeds and then um, as prosecution satisfied the judges that uh, you as a prosecution team have proven beyond reasonable doubt the charges from his indictment. Mm. And because of the way that a lot of the massacres in Bosnia happened, um, not with direct military control, but more with these sort of militias that were happening all over the place, I imagine it's very difficult to prove that. How did they actually you know, f figure out that he was really the one who did this? Well, uh, for uh, you and your listeners, um, I think it's not too known, but at the ICTY, there were many, several cases of political leaders, mm -hmm. but also for military. Because it was the same with Milosevic as well. It was yeah. very difficult to, yeah, they absolutely. destroyed the paper trail and everything. And Well, I don't think it was difficult. What I wanted to say is that Karadzic's case was not a, a first case, so that Prosecution had to invent the legal theories how to deal with this uh, uh, particular issue. What is actually his his power, uh, mm. given that there was such a diffuse group of armed forces and whom he could control and he could not control. So I will tell you two legal theories that uh, prosecution applied from the very first start of working of this tribunal one is uh, distinguishing and then connecting de facto and the jure control of a political leader. Sometimes you can have uh, um, in description of a political function like president of Republika Srpska in this case, the whole list of duties and obligations, uh, like in constitution, they would say what that, for example, president of Republika Srpska or any other state is commander of chief of armed forces in peace and war. Mm. So it gives already a framework of his duty to know what's happening in the territory that he 
controls. So it so was, he could be found guilty through negligence also. Uh, well, there there are many more more ways how he could be found. And then de facto, sometimes a leader or his advisor does not have the jure uh, function that would allow him to tell someone do this and that. But because of de facto position of power that mm-hmm. this person, especially Milosevic, could acquire, uh, you could actually still, as a prosecution, uh, argue someone's criminal responsibility. But uh, de facto power is quite um, challenging and tricky because then you need to have so many witnesses Yeah. Usually insiders who would be able to say what sort of connections this particular And then if they testify, had. they're putting their own personal security at risk. And it's... Because wasn't there a lot in the Milosevic trial who came forward and then were assassinated or they had to remain their identity secret? Yeah, well, I don't think that's... Uh, uh, the, the, it, it's never, you know, a really trouble to find people close to political leader eventually to testify, sometimes asking protection, but sometimes in open. In uh, Slobodan Milosevic's case, it happened many times with no problems at all. But let's go back to another doctrine. So one is de facto and the jure uh, power of a political leader, but other doctrine is joint criminal enterprise. Mm-hmm. So basically, this one tells us that if you are a political leader, uh, of a state or entity or quasi-state, as the Republika Srpska was, that you couldn't possibly be responsible for so many crimes, mass atrocities, for three and a half years in Karadzic's case and about 10 years in Slobodan Milosevic's case without being helped by people around you, but not just your friends or family or your party members, but because of their function, they were using individuals from their own state institutions. Mm. So what does it say? That, yes, uh, Karadzic um, was president of Republika Srpska and had a very um, uh, defined duties, obligations, and Republika Srpska, um, just to clarify, because mm-hmm. that's the um, division of Bosnia that was set up by Tito. Oh, no, um, no, before, no, no. So how does it work? Because I was there in the summer and I kind of understand it now. But maybe you could explain it real quick for the listeners. Because it is very complex how Bosnia is set up now and how it has been set up for the last 30 years. Well, to to understand what Republika Srpska is, is uh, we, we should go a little back, bit in, into history of former Yugoslavia. Communist Yugoslavia, which was a federation existing of six republics and two autonomous provinces. Both provinces belong to Republic of Serbia. One was called Kosovo, which is now in the news all the time, and another mm-hmm. less known is Vojvodina in the north. So when Yugoslavia was disintegrating, Serbia, uh, under the leadership of Slovak Milosevic, argued that there should be self-determination of people as the basis for new states, while yeah. the others, like Slovenia and Croatia, s- supported by international community said no Yugoslavia is going to disintegrate but the new states are going to be based on self-determination of republics basically claiming 
that every Republican border, like Slovenian, Croatian, Bosnian, Serbian, Macedonian, Montenegrin, are going to be new borders of these new states. Mm. And because Milosevic never accepted it, he used his huge de facto powers over Serbs in Croatia and Serbs in Bosnia and said, yes, Yugoslavia is disintegrating, but post-Yugoslav Serbian state will be expanded by the territories with Serb population in Croatia and in Bosnia. And for yeah. that purpose, they proclaimed already in 1991 in Croatia a uh, Serb Republic of Krajina. And in Bosnia in 92, in January 92, they proclaimed Republika Srpska, Republic of And that was Serbia. the first act of aggression? Uh, the first act of aggression... Well, actually, you know what's so interesting also to go back to uh, polit- trials of two political leaders, Radovan Karadžić and Slobodan Milosevic. Uh, aggression is not qualified as a crime in international um, tribunal for yeah. former Yugoslavia. But uh, if you really look into evolvement of being simply... Um, dishonest, manipulative politician, which is okay, it's not criminal most of the time, to a criminal politician, then you go first to Croatia, and then you see that criminality in Milosevic's case starts in 1990, in summer 1990, when they start to carve out the borders of Republika Srpska Krajina in Croatia. Why criminality starts there? You have to understand that 11 municipalities in Croatia at that time were had Serb majority. Mm-hmm. But the territory Serbs claim under Milosevic instructions was much larger. larger. Mm-hmm. There were many non-Serbs living here, mostly Croats. And by carving out these borders of the Republika Srpska Krajina in Croatia, Serb armed forces committed crimes against Croats. And the same matrix of creating a Serb territories was then applied to Bosnia. And from 1992, Serbs under leadership of Radovan Karadzic, but with support and overall plan coming from Slobodan Milosevic, did exactly the same. They appointed or carved out the parts of Bosnia and Herzegovina, which was recognized in April as an independent state. And in the same sort of way, in the, on this territory of Republika Srpska to be, they were committing the crimes against non-Serb population, which culminated yeah. in a genocide, genocidal massacre in Srebrenica in July 1995. And do you think that there was a real will from the Serbs living in Croatia and Bosnia to be reunited with the rest of Serbia, or it was more Milosevic and other people in power in Belgrade implanting this idea of the Serb national like identity onto the whole region? Well, Do you think they would have been happy living in Croatia, or they would have been happy living in Bosnia if the war hadn't happened? You know what? What I I think that uh, Yugos, this integration in Yugoslavia really didn't need 
to happen in this awfully violent Of course way. not, yeah. And the question why it happened in this way is a complex one and it's not easy to give very quick um, uh, opinion or qualification. Well, if you if you look that from three former communist federations, Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia, none of these federations survived uh, communism. It was obvious that there are going to happen huge changes in European state system after the end of communism. And uh, indeed, I think about 25 new states were created after uh, 1991, uh, Baltic states, a little bit um, from Baltic states onwards. And fascinating thing is that there was no similar violence in Soviet Union, although the disintegration of Soviet Union apparently is not com- completely, completely, if you see what's happening in Ukraine, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, in Czechoslovakia, there was no problem at all. And then this problem in, uh, in, in former Yugoslavia started where we had almost 10 years of, uh, of war and violence. Um, you know, it would be too easy to say that at the end of life of communist Yugoslavia, Milosevic rose to power and because of his evilness and about of and, and his uh, power actually to, to get and leaders from Croatia and from Bosnia behind him, things would have been different. You know, when you have... So Milosevic was important as driver of a train but this train yeah. already started to speed up even before he was he became de facto and the Jure leader of all Serbs. The Jure obviously in uh, in Croatia and uh, Bosnia among Bosnian and Croat Serbs and the Jure once he won the presidency of Republic of Serbia. Uh, and you know in this difficult times when everyone people on the street understand that times are going to be very different. It creates uncertainty. And I think people who live in Britain can understand what it means. Even if you tell people in the next 50 years, we will have very difficult, complicated political um, uh, instability, you sort of tell them, you know, get adopted to it. But the worst, worst thing that happens to people is uncertainty. Although some of them were very unhappy in communism, period of uncertainty that came after that made everyone much more susceptible to so-called strong leadership. Yeah. And Milosevic did, in the first days and years of, of his power, he did um, sound as a promising leader who would offer the new type of certainty. So he had many supporters, but um, it was not why uh, Republika Srpska Krajina in Croatia was created. It was created because he knew that he needed to create and communicate exclusively with political elites. And small people did not interest them they did interest them to that extent that because there was 
determination and acceptance that their goals could be achieved only by armed forces, that they needed somehow to get all these people, young people, at age of 18, 19, to be mobilized in these forces and to fight for their political causes. And in this way, they made life of uh, Serbs in Croatia at the beginning of the war almost impossible because, you know, you, you, you had to uh, join in, you had to be part of, of, of this political movement. Mm. Those who, who did <clears throat> not had very, very difficult time. Yeah. Yeah, it's very tricky. I think as well with um, a lot of, when I was there in the summer, I noticed that you would go, I would go from country to country and receive completely different stories on what happened between the countries. So one day I'd be in Mostar hearing about the invasion of Mostar and how it was the Serbians who came first, and I went to Serbia, and people who were both there in the events, and they would tell me completely different versions of what happened. And I feel like there's, especially in Serbia, there was a big lack of understanding about the reality of the war. And are there still protests there now about what happened and what's happening now in The Hague with the ICTY? Um... Or do you feel like people are starting to accept the reality what, of what happened? Basically what you are asking whether these polarized political realities that uh, pushed people against each other along some ethnic fault lines have been helped by narratives about the war and judgments yeah, because it's very uh, that it's came very... from uh, tribunal, yeah. and my answer is maybe, maybe they will, but I don't yet see that the judgments and the verdicts at the ICTY have helped different parties in the region to come to some sort of consensus, to some sort of neutral version why the war started. I don't think there's ever going to be a neutral version of why the war started. Well, Um, let let me ask you, do you think that there is a neutral version why the Second World War started? Do you think that at any sort of pub here in Amsterdam, we can go and say the Second World War started because... Yeah, but Germany no, under Hitler. It, it it always depends how far you go back. So you could say, oh, it was because Germany invaded Poland, but then you could also say, oh no, actually it was because the Germans were so hard done by in the Treaty of Versailles, because they had to come to that finality with the Nazis, based on the conditions that were put on them by Britain and France. So you can't, you can always go back a bit further and say it was because of this. But I guess there is now a lot more of an accepted narrative that comes with time. But I feel like with with Serbia, and especially because of the ICTY trials and how it was immediate, they were said to have done something so wrong. And their leaders were captured and they were taken to a foreign country which had nothing to do with the war. I feel like that reconciliation might take a bit longer for people in Serbia to fully understand what happened there. Yeah. So why, why did you uh, connect um, your initial question when you asked about... Um, people coming to terms uh, to some uh, shared uh, historical narrative, and then Mm -hmm. you mentioned world reconciliation. Uh, Do you think that these two things are connected? Oh, definitely. I think that that if you 
as a nation, when you fully start to understand what you've done in terms of your national identity and what your past is, especially if there's been some kind of war in that past and both sides, because I think really Bosnians and Croatians are only fully going to forgive Serbians for what happened once Serbians start to say, actually, no, what we did there was terrible in this way and that way, the same way that Germans and French or British and French and Americans only started to forgive the Germans once they started to realize what they'd done and then reconcile for it. And do do you think that Nuremberg trials helped uh process of reconciliation? I think they did help, yeah. And I think I think they help in this in a similar way to the ICTY ICTY trials helping. Um you, you I don't say, think it, I I think they help in a very indirect way for the country that's being prosecuted. So for example the trial of Milosevic that went on for how many years? Six. Six years. And that was No, less, four years. And that was really not pleasant for any Serbian who had to watch that and see one of somebody who they thought was a national hero on trial in a foreign country being, you know, tried with all these horrendous crimes. But then for the people in Bosnia and Croatia, I imagine that was, you know, so validating to see that the person who would who had in many ways started this conflict was actually being held accountable for what he'd done. You know, it, it, um, I really appreciate your your thoughts about that because these are the thoughts that uh, most of the people, certainly in Europe, would have uh, when we see that there was such a robust uh, uh, legal response in the yeah. form of ICTY to the mass atrocities. Because, but because you know, I worked at this institution for thirteen years, as I said, and I uh, continued. Was that before you were a professor? Uh, no, no, no. I I, uh, I started in 2000 and I st- at the beginning of 2000 and I stopped at the end of 2012. But I used some of these experiences for my research, uh, uh, academic research. And one of the things, you know, that I discover is that it is very difficult to connect criminal trials of any kind with a reconciliation process. Why? First of all, criminal justice is a retributive justice. It's so concentrated on perpetrator, one single perpetrator. So all attention by prosecution, defense judges is for this one single person, Slobodan Milosevic and Karadzic. And it can go both both ways. It can go both ways. So if you say Milosevic trial was broadcast on daily basis in the region, including Serbia, so Serbs should see what he as political leader was doing to the others on their behalf. Yes, they were watching Tribunal and they were watching Milosevic's case, but many of them cheering for him. They never, never saw that he did anything wrong and they watched mm. it with such eyes to see only confirmation of him being a hero. I'm not talking about all Serbs, I'm talking just about this media perception. So this um, concentration on, say, a potential alleged perpetrator is not in unimportant, even if in the case of Karadzic, some he he uh, his trial finished and he is convicted, and most of the victims are satisfied with life in prison sentence. You have to think about. So, how does it really help reconciliation? Think about a bank robbery case in a normal situation in, mm-hmm. here in in Amsterdam. So the perpetrator 
has been tracked down, investigated and tried at a criminal court, found guilty, sent to prison for stealing like 50 million of of dollars or euros from Dutch and other citizens. And uh, there were at least 100 victims, maybe 2,000 victims. And he was punished because in a retributive justice system, important thing is punishment. So he ends up in a jail. And what about victims? Do we expect that there comes ever some sort of um, reconciliation? Yeah, talks about it, why and how, yeah. or are they all happy? And what about money? If he did not give them money back and money is still hidden and the law enforcement would, couldn't get it, wouldn't the victims actually be much more happy with some sort of restorative justice for him to return mm. the money back to them? In a rape case, it's exactly the same. You have a rapist, you have a victim. A the rapist the time, is found guilty, he yeah. goes to the jail. And retributive, for retributive justice, it's enough. But no one expects that families of victim and perpetrator will come together and say, okay, no, they will try to avoid each other. They will try yeah. to go about their own, own ways. So yet, having said this, mass atrocities trials are different than any other criminal trial. And, but still in my experience, uh, there are no signs how directly or indirectly the verdicts of tribunal helped for Bosnian society mm. to come closer. I think with other. Bosnian society, it's always going to be very difficult because of how the country's set up and you have three different factions operating there and a political system, which I think is doomed to fail. But I feel like with um, restorative justice and retributive justice, they're both very much focused on the past and how we're going to now help the victims because of what happened to them and we're going to punish the perpetrators because of what they did. And a lot of the time you can't achieve restorative justice um, and you can't you know, go back and unkill the people who were massacred in Srebrenica or in parts of Croatia. But I don't think it's so much about making the people who did wrong things wrong pay or trying to help the victims. It's about setting a precedent here and now. And in the opportunity that we have, and while it's still fresh what's happened, you look at it and go, okay, no, this is terrible. This is so wrong. We have to analyze this and look into it and look at why it happened and who did what wrong and who was hurt and how we can try and maybe fix things in the here and now, but really just set a precedent. And I feel like that's a lot of what, of, a lot of what law is about is just, saying, okay, now actually we're going to talk about this and discuss it so that it hopefully doesn't happen again. And that the trials have always been there, not so much. I think it's almost a byproduct what happens to Serbia and Bosnia as a result of these trials. You have the trials because you have to, because you're setting a precedent for international law. Well, if you, if you look uh, closer into uh, uh, examples of the past where the sort of very vague but very modern term, transitional justice has been implied. Then we see that legal justice and courtroom justice is not the only form of justice that exists. And mm. retributive justice is just a small, small contribution to many different possibilities to deal with the post-conflict societies and achieve something. And if you look into models that are now offered by 
practitioners and, and academics, then you see that in this uh, reconciliation term, which is very, very difficult to, uh, to actually capture and to define, to know exactly what mm. it is, because it's very, very often emotional attitude as someone's victim or perpetrator or someone in between to feel what process does for him or her. But there are about four interesting four, four, four groups of um, of or categories what is important for reconciliation. First is uh, security. So people expect that after the war is over, they feel physically safe, mm-hmm. but that they that they feel also economic, social and and all other sort of securities, you know, for existence. And of course, absence of repetition of going back, falling back into the same conflict that was finished by a peace process. In in Bosnian case, it was the Dayton peace agreement from uh, December 95. Uh, second group is justice. There is a very um, understandable and legitimate expectations for those who are on the receiving end of violence that there will be some accountability for those who uh, who did something wrong. Third is truth. And in truth, part of the truth is who did what, why. So this is where elements of uh, historical narrative fall. And very often, mass atrocity trials do offer lots of important mm. historical documentation to add to processes of historiography of conflict. But the last one is I had a huge... If, um, trouble to understand that one, it's mercy. It's about this emotional interaction. Okay, there is a perpetrator who is in jail, but he still thinks he's innocent. And he serves, and the victims look at it and said, yeah, we are willing to forgive. We are now like mothers of Srebrenica. We don't have one single male in our immediate family because they all vanished from 16 to 96. But we are willing to, to forgive, and they look in to to these uh, mm. perpetrators, ones who were uh, uh, tried and convicted of, of crimes, and they very often see aging men who do not see that they've done anything wrong. And Karadzic is one of them. So he goes to jail, but he still thinks that he was fighting for his people. So in this... But you're never going to be able to change that. That's always going to be his view on it. I mean, unless you, you know, execute him. But it's a, You're always going to have a situation where he's going to be living out his life thinking that he, you can't change his mind. Exactly, you know? but you know, the victims, especially victims from Srebrenica, mothers of Srebrenica, some of them, which, which I speak uh, uh, with some regularity, they say, look, we as a victims, we don't need reconciliation because we were never uh, in 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 a conflict or in a fight or in in a quarrel with someone. He said we were just here living our lives and someone attacked us. But now that there has been the attack and they have been involved in this violence, they are a part of it now. There is a fight now. No, no, no. I mean, when it comes to to legal justice, to retributive okay. justice, so they say. So, <clears throat> for us, we are here as we were before the war, 
But they expect basically for perpetrators to say, oh my God, yes, we see that everything what we have done was wrong. But sometimes you can have a huge convic- conviction like life sentence, like the uh, case of uh, Radovan Karadzic, and he still thinks he's innocent. Mm. So he's it's not, not it's not ideal because ideally you would have a situation where he'd be convicted and hopefully he would maybe issue a, you know, a group apology. But I still think it's a lot better than having a situation where he's allowed to walk freely in Serbia and he's celebrated and he's you know living a lovely life in the comfort of his own people who all think that he did nothing wrong and celebrate him as a hero. And then there's everyone in Bosnia who looks at that person and goes, he's responsible for the death of my family. Mm-hmm. And nobody talks about that. Nobody even acknowledges it. Nobody has any idea that this happened. Because that, that, that would have been the situation if there was no ICTY. Well, it just com- would have gone on... Definitely, accountability is so uh, very, very important. And yet, when when you then go back to mass atrocities, then you know the word says it. There were many, many, many victims. The more victims you have, the more perpetrators mm. you will have. And then even the ICTY, Yugoslav Tribunal, who was considered and still has been considered as the apotheosis of efficiency of UN, had issued only 161 indictment. Yeah. And if you look that only in Bosnia there were more than 100,000 war losses people that vanished not just because mm. of war crimes and then you ask yeah accountability as we now know uh from just Yugoslav tribunal and generally international criminal um regime Uh, including the permanent uh, international criminal court the icc is such that it always will be symbolic and selective symbolic why symbolic because by um indicting radovan karadzic you say he symbolizes so many others who were engaged in the mm. same criminal criminal planning and execution of it to form this quasi state within Bosnia and Herzegovina, quasi-state of Republika Srpska, and um, a selective, because if you have 100,000 victims, how many potential perpetrators would be oh, at enough? Least, at least a thousand. I'm saying at least a thousand carried out the acts. Well, no one really knows, yeah. because we don't have any wonderful formula for that's, that. That's where the mercy part of it comes into it again, is that you're not going to, prosecute and try and find every person who might have killed somebody at Srebrenica or another massacres you're going to say okay no we are going to forgive you because what you did actually wasn't really your fault mm-hmm. you know you might have pulled the trigger but in many ways you didn't have a choice whereas the person at the top they did have a choice and they knew what they were doing and they knew they would be responsible for what they were doing if anything went wrong that's part of being a leader is that you accept that responsibility even when sometimes you know that something wasn't your fault or you think it wasn't your fault, you still have to take that on your chin. Yeah, but you know, uh, when I mentioned these four big categories that are very important and play a role in something we want to think is a reconciliation process and security and justice and truth and mercy, uh, uh, no, no one really knows in what sort of combination they should go together to be enough. But what I know from my research, for my uh, in, in uh, academic research, is that there is next to judicial courtroom justice, something called as political justice as well. Mm-hmm. And it is very hard to have mercy if you know 
that the peace agreement is actually unjust to the part of the victims because Srebrenica is now part of Republika Srpska. And these people um, uh, have to fear again for their security. Why? Because Republika Srpska survived Dayton Peace Accord. Serbs were never punished uh, by uh, Dayton, but were awarded uh, territorial integrity of Republika Srpska within Bosnia and Herzegovina. Mm-hmm. But you know what's interesting? For Serbia, now in post-Milošević Serbia, and certainly for Republika Srpska post-Karadžić elites, they still did not give up the ambition to unite Republika Srpska with state of Serbia. Even now? Absolutely. Yeah. This is one of the, if, if you just go and, and follow the rhetoric yeah. of uh, I think in many ways leaders. as well, it would, it's, it's not an option which is wholly terrible because of the way that I think Bosnia is set up now, it is going to need reform in some way. Yeah, but what, whatever reforms are, imagine from this mercy point of view, Mothers of Srebrenica who are now in their 50s, 60s and 70s, they live in Srebrenica and after so many years waiting for some little Mm. indications and grains of justice, they know that, you know, the the stability of their homes now in Serbia is is under threat. So I don't think we should look into the... um, judicial and courtroom justice in isolation because then there is historical justice as well. Mm. So we, we could talk about hist- what is historical justice? Historical justice is, yeah. I think a big part of it is finding the truth. And in a, com- a conflict like this, which is so complex, it was really not understood very well, especially when I was there as well. I understood it, how the people there who lived through it still have no idea what happened. What is military truth? Yeah. You know, if you look into the uh, uh, dynamics of the war in Bosnia-Herzegovina, you had war was unleashed by Serbian armed forces. And we can now, uh, we, could, we could talk uh, which, which uh, what are the parts of this uh, Serbian armed forces. But there is no doubt that Serbs started the war being very Uh, overwhelmingly stronger than uh, Army of Bosnia Herzegovina. Mm-hmm. But the dynamics of the war changed since a very important agreement from March 94 called the Washington Agreement, when Bosniaks, Bosnian Muslims, and Bosnian Croats started to cooperate together politically and militarily. Mm-hmm. And basically, you know what happened? They defeated the Serb forces, Bosnian Serb forces in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Yeah. And that led Bosnian Serbs to negotiate in Dayton. But in Dayton, you do not see military defeat of Serbs because they were rewarded with the entity of Republika Srpska. Mm. And that wouldn't be such a bad idea, maybe. But it is a bad idea if now, 20 and four years almost, after Dayton... The leaders of Republika Srpska and leaders of of Serbia, Serbia are still trying still to get, yeah. want to achieve something, despite the fact that militarily they didn't succeed. They were defeated, 
You know, and this is something this generation who, who was very hurt in war, generation of victims, cannot accept. Yeah. Despite so you, think, you think that Dayton was a failure in many ways? Oh, Dayton was expression of uh, power politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I uh, mean that in Dayton, uh, international community with the leadership of America was dictating the terms of uh, peace and that from many choices that had, that made a choice that actually awarded. Why did they do that? Because when I was in Bosnia, I spoke to some people about it and I started to learn about how the Americans had been so involved in Dayton and how they dictated the process. But I couldn't understand why they would have given preference to Republic of Srpska and the Serbians in that situation and not been completely on the side of the people who'd won the conflict and the people who'd been initially attacked. Uh, you know, when you started this interview, you said something uh, interesting, and I uh, and you, you said that um, Yugoslav conflicts have been uh, most uh, complex and uh, difficult to resolve, probably in the world. Uh, I would have thought so myself if I hadn't been to Middle East. Yeah. And, you know, there was at a certain point in my work on Milosevic case, a moment of eureka, of eye-opening. And what happened, actually, that we had one witness after another, very high-level witnesses, uh, chef de cabinet of former Croatian uh, president, Franjo Tudman, uh, former prime minister of, last prime minister of SFRY, communist Yugoslavia, his name was Ante Markovic. They all came to testify for prosecution and you know what they told us that Milosevic mm-hmm. Milosevic's plan to carve uh, out the territories in Bosnia and Herzegovina which Serbs called ethnic separation making separate at least or not at least three separate ethnically dominated mm. territories uh was supported and by at that time EC European community which changed to become European Union in February 92 and America so the major the leaders of democratic world why because they were uh talks which were never recorded at the meetings that some EU leaders and later American leaders did not want Muslim majority state in the heart of Europe. So can you imagine the state really? that? Really? Oh, it's oh, all on yeah, record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was an that interesting and huge overlap. I'm not saying that international community supported Milosevic in his policy, but yes, he did support it when the interests overlap. So yeah. ethnic separation and then ethnic homogenization of the territories that were, say, under Serb control or because were, they Because they knew, that it wouldn't, they knew it wouldn't actually result in three separate states. They knew it would be Croatia and Serbia. Well, what, what is happening... They would divide up Bosnia. Yeah, but this is why I, I mentioned the Middle East. Do you think that Middle East is really such a complicated problem that the best brains in the world, the most powerful politicians of the world cannot resolve, or is Middle East on purpose made a territory of permanent instability so that 
big powers always can uh, use it for the power their, their relations yeah. and that stability of Middle East in favor of Sunnis in Saudi Arabia or Israel and, and Jews would uh, not be accepted by, by uh, world powers. And when I looked into Middle East division and cementing the divisions and within the Islam world on Shias and Sunnis and, and then this Jewish element, I understood that great powers contributed by division of Bosnia according to ethnic but basically religious criteria, fault lines, were made or, or, or helped or even planned to, to make out of the Balkans and certainly of Bosnia territory of permanent instability in order to better to control it. Mm. So that was one of tough conclusions of my academic work after I stopped working at a tribunal. But for these uh, findings, I was using actually the evidence and trial um, archive from Milosevic case. And this is why I am very convinced that these trials are having not just legal function, but also extra legal function because they are going to serve as a very important historical source to go a little bit uh, deeper into why and how and not just to follow conventional sources and conventional ways to follow the politics. And, and, and to, my, um, to, to, to my end surprise and now to my satisfaction, I have been able to find many, many of such sources to create alternative views on what and how really happened mm. in a former Yugoslavia. Well, that is fascinating. I've never thought about it that way, that they were really, they wanted the instability there. And I think it always gets the narrative that you see in the West and the way that, you know, I first came into it. It's like, oh, this region was so screwed up because of communism, you know, and because of Tito failed to reconcile the differences between these people. And then, you know, the West had to come in and, you know, the ICTY and then they kind of helped, you know, get the people who were responsible and otherwise they would never have been held responsible. Really ignores the whole side you just brought up, which is actually, you know, it should never have been this way. Serbia should never have had the idea in their head that they could be ethnic determination. It was always going to be republics. Right, yeah. Yeah. You know, once you, you work at such places like international criminal tribunals and in, in high-level cases, uh, as it was Slobodan Milosevic's case and Radovan Karadzic, what you learn is that nothing is as it seems to mm. be. And... Uh, working really from inside there and having access to every person in the world and institution in the world because... Did you ever speak to him directly? To, to, no. Uh, it, it's, uh, it simply really helps to, to uh, change the course of uh, our conventional history or mm. predictability in a historical narrative. But it's very difficult, even if you know these things and you, you give le lectures, you write in your books... Uh, it's very difficult for this sort of narrative to penetrate uh, mainstream um, uh, Western narrative about wars in Yugoslavia because it's oh, it's so lovely to think that the West is superior to these people in yeah, the Balkans and they always and, be, yeah, misbehave yeah. and then we 
come to help them, but my God, they're very difficult to be helped. While none of the wars in former Yugoslavia since beginning of 19th century onwards could be isolated from mainstream historical developments in the Europe. Mm. And every big European war ended up with a big European conference where Yugoslavia or Yugoslav people before or states before Yugoslavia existed were actually put in some sort of um, geo geopolitical political context, strategic yeah. uh, um, form. So Yugoslavia, uh, first Yugoslavia was a product of Versailles mm-hmm. peace uh, agreement, uh, communist Yugoslavia's the product of the Yol- of... Yalta conference yeah. and disintegration Yugoslavia is direct result of end of one another big war in in Europe and it was Cold War. Unfortunately, after Cold War, there was not one big comprehensive peace conference. How the European state system should look like after the end of the communism. Mm. And interesting with Bosnia again is, you know that communism as a global threat disappeared and the world was confused. But then already since Iran revolution, the beginning of the 80s and and since uh, Ayatollah Khomeini pronouncing Islamic Republic of, of Iran, we are actually merging into global threat of ideological Islam. Mm. And then, my God, in Yugoslavia, you have a small little example of it. And this is Bosnia. And what, what, reaction what, um, and overreaction of the Western powers to this, you know, still very simmering and small threat. And then in the, in the 90s, it became bigger and bigger, and then in 2000 and on, onwards, you know, from uh, uh, Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, we, we actually ended up in in uh, ISLS. But it is interesting that all these ingredients of global policy, European politics, you will find on the Balkans and the influence on the West and, and uh, great powers of the world, uh, how they react to the Balkans always serves self-interest, which you will not easily see and they will not be articulated so that we can uh, use them immediately when we analyze the conflict. So this is now what, in hindsight, after three decades, decades almost since, since the war started, we have many more mechanisms and many more information to include this international, not just international conf, uh, context after post-Cold War, but uh, geopolitical, r- realpolitik interests of the big powers. And for that, the tribunal and this type of evidence that I just mentioned about uh, West being very uh, reluctant to accept Bosnia and Herzegovina as a European Muslim-majority independent state contributed to to how Bosnia looks now and Bosnia looks now as a region of permanent instability. But it's not something that West does not accept. This is exactly what West and world powers want it to be. Mm. Yeah, no, that is very true. And it wouldn't have even been a massively Muslim-majority country, isn't it? Like 60% in Bosnia. No, no, 40. There were... Yeah, I mean, it, uh, according to census been... from uh, 91, uh, they were 
relative majority. There were about 44% of uh, Muslims, 33 it's not even, it's, it's Serbs, a, it's and a plurality. about 17 Croats. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. We will see. On that note, I think we'll finish it up. It's been a long podcast. I think we'll divide this into two parts. One about Kosovo, one about Bosnia. But thank you very much for joining me, Nana. Thank you. It's been a pleasure Felix. chatting to you. I've learned a lot. Till next time. Till next time. Bye bye.